1: Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we're pleased to have with us Dr. Ambrolio Kahani. Dr. Kahani is a senior lecturer in modern history at the University of Kent. He is the author of a good number of well-received books, and today we are discussing his latest book, To Kidnap a Pope. Napoleon and Pius Seventh, published by Yale University Press. Welcome, Dr. Kahani.
0: Uh, thank you so much for the invitation. It's a great honor to be here.
1: Uh, what is, Dr., the thesis of your book?
0: So, uh, to put it very simply, it's an investigation into the fraught relationship between the Catholic Church and the Napoleonic Empire, which culminated in the kidnapping of Pope Pius VII. Now, my thesis is that unlike previous uh, analyses of this fraught relationship, that Napoleon's um, and the French Empire's key aim was not to create a separation of church and state, let alone to secularize uh, the French state, but rather to subjugate the Catholic Church and to use it to legitimize their political rule, their own power. So that's basically the content of the book. But it looks at how this mission to subjugate the Catholic Church led to some very dramatic events, and namely the kidnapping of the Pope, and he was to be Napoleon's prisoner for five years.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about the uh, background of the future Pope Pius Seventh?
0: Yes, so uh, Pope Pius was an Italian aristocrat uh, f- um, from um, Cisena, which is quite close to Ravenna, uh, a market town. He came from a very religious family. He lost his father when he was quite young. His mother had an iron faith in the Catholic Church. And uh, like so many of his siblings, he experienced a religious vocation and became a Benedictine monk. He was clearly a man of some intellect and taught at various Catholic universities uh, like Parma and Rome Rome at this time. And eventually he was sort of singled out by his cousin, Pope Pius VI, as a good candidate for the episcopacy. He became Bishop of Imola uh, and eventually was made a cardinal of the Catholic Church. Uh, Despite this, he never seems to have been quite an insider in Rome He spent most of his time in his diocese and was quite interested in the pastoral care of uh, his flock. But he was a man who had a certain interest in progressive ideas. His library in Imola uh, had quite a number of Enlightenment texts. The moment when he sort of emerges in history is when Napoleon Bonaparte and his armies invade northern Italy. And his diocese falls into one of the puppet states created by the revolutionary armies, the Cisalpine Republic. And during Christmas Day, 1797, he preaches a sermon in which he declares that democracy and Catholicism or Christianity are not mutually exclusive, that democracy might be possible uh, under a Christian system. So he's seen at this stage as an unknown quantity of whether he might be a progressive.
1: Now, uh, was um, Janicism an influence on uh, his uh, religious beliefs?
0: A lot of historians think that Jansenism, which is a very austere, Augustinian, quasi-Calvinist heresy within Catholicism at this time, might have been an influence. Now, his greatest biographer, Jean Leflon, has debunked this theory. But I would say he wasn't a Jansenist, but he was sympathetic to reform Catholicism in the way that Benedict XIV or Ludovico Muratori would have been earlier in the century. What do I mean by this? Uh, less baroque and less, uh, how do you call it, over-the-top celebrations of mass and rituals. The other thing he he was in favor of was a reduction of feast days in order to increase productivity in society. So I think he was in favor of a more rationalized and streamlined church. But I don't think he was uh, a card-carrying Jansenist. There isn't much evidence to suggest that in his writings.
1: When did Bonaparte lose his religious beliefs?
0: Oh, that's a good question. On St. Helena, uh, he wrote or he dictated, I should rather say, that the happiest day in his life was when he had his first communion. As always, he is reflecting long after the events. So I don't know how reliable or how trustworthy Napoleon is when he's on St. Helena but it would seem that at some point when he started going to school in France at the College of Autun or possibly the military academy in Brienne, he lost his religious faith. Also because the Minims or Franciscan order that taught him weren't very rigorous or very keen in their religious observances and indeed were quite lax. So it seems that at some point there he lost, let's say, a deep Catholic faith.
1: What influence, if any, did Gallicism have on Bonaparte's idea of the church's role in society?
0: I'm afraid I didn't quite hear the first word there. My apologies.
1: What Uh, influence, if any, did Gallicism have on Bonaparte's idea of the church's role in society?
0: Do you mean Gallicanism? Yes, yes. Oh, my apologies. Uh, So that's an interesting one. I think initially he's distrustful of the notion of Gallicanism um, because it did. So this was a notion that goes back all the way to the Middle Ages and the end of the Hundred Years' War. This notion that the Church of France in council could be independent from the papacy and could have a certain degree of autonomy away from Rome. And indeed, under Louis XIV, it gets its greatest expression in the four Gallican articles of 1682, in which the king of France can't be excommunicated and is not uh, and cannot be pursued for his political decisions. And the church in France has the right in council to approve the pope's conditions or or the pope's decrees. Uh, I think Bonaparte's initially worried of giving his national church too much autonomy and relies on and is going to rely on the papacy to um, regulate the church. He quite liked the idea of the papacy as a centralizing force. As he begins to fall out with the papacy, he then begins to actually reinvigorate, uh, what would you call it, uh, Gallicanism in a way that it had not been uh, previously I would say that around 1807, 1808, he becomes much more interested in Gallicanism to the extent that he makes the four articles of Louis XIV of 1682 part of French law. He introduces them back into the universities and the seminaries. It is compulsory to become a priest in France to learn the four Gallican articles. So I say Gallicanism comes back to Napoleon later on in his reign.
1: Do we have any idea how the future Pope Pius VII reacted to the anti-clerical legislation of the French Revolution?
0: Um, That's a good question. One can suppose from his subsequent writings that he wasn't in favor, but he wasn't actually a high flyer in the Vatican. He wasn't on the commissions or congregations of cardinals who were sitting with Pius VI, his predecessor, condemning the reforms of the French Revolution, but it would be surprising if he was in favor. Judging from the concordat he signed with Napoleon, he wasn't against a rationalization of the number of dioceses in France, their reduction of priests receiving state salaries. But I think the idea that clergy would not be responsible to the pope or could be invested or elected uh, by the laity, he would not have been in favor of that. There's little evidence. So I, I think he wouldn't have been a fan, but we don't have many writings from this early stage, to give his views.
1: How did Bonaparte react to the religious politics of the French Revolution prior to 1795?
0: That is a very good question. I think, how do you call it, at this point we don't really have many utterances of Napoleon on religion, but judging from his behavior, he had a certain respect for good priests, secular clergy, i.e. parish priests who met with the laity and ministered and provided utility to their flocks. They were not importuned during his campaigns in northern Italy. Um, But I think he had a deep disdain of regular clergy, that is monks and nuns who lived a contemplative life. He had nothing against monks and nuns who worked in hospitals, orphanages or provided social utility. But I think he was very inimical to the idea of, let's say, monks behaving like parasites. I think Napoleon generally, or Bonaparte in his early career, saw religion as useful in legitimating and helping military occupation or rule. After all, let's not forget he goes to Egypt and in Egypt he gives the imams and the sheikhs, the religious leaders of Egypt, lots of power. Uh, indeed, the author Juan Cole in his book Napoleon's Egypt jokes, or well, half jokes, that Napoleon may have created the first Islamic republic in history during his Egyptian campaign.
1: So in fact, uh, his views are rather typical of the mid to uh, late uh, 18th century Enlightenment uh, views on, in particular, monks and uh, secular clergy.
0: One really gets the sense that he's well aware of of, of of that. You know, reading Voltaire, Rousseau, and others, which we have evidence he would have come to these conclusions. I think also perhaps his appreciation of secular clergy may come from the fact that a number of his ancestors and his family, indeed his great uncle Luciano, were clergymen who ministered to their local community in Corsica. So he probably would have been sympathetic to the good parish priest uh, helping his helping the locality. There's little evidence that he had any sympathy for the mass de campaigns of the terror or let's say the Cult of Reason or the Supreme Being or Theophilanthropy, which were created during the Directory. He never uh, be- was actively involved, as far as we know, in-, in these revolutionary cults or new religions.
1: Why was His Holiness Pope Pius Seventh elected to head the Catholic Church?
0: That is a very good question. He wasn't the favorite, if I can put it like that. Also, <sighs> conclaves... Or papal elections in the um, early modern period were really endurance affairs. You know, I think recently in the 20th and 19th century, conclaves tend to last anywhere from a few days to perhaps a week. In the 18th century, on average, conclaves lasted three months. The reason for this is that the great Catholic powers, Spain, France, and the Holy Roman Empire, claimed the use exclusive or the right of veto over a candidate, which they uh, to whom they which they didn't approve. The kings of Portugal also claimed to have the right to veto a candidate, but that was never recognized. So basically, this conclave, which is actually quite interesting because Rome is under occupation at this time, the French had tried to create a republic in Rome. And uh, at this time, it was sort of on the front line. So the cardinal's couldn't meet in Rome. Actually, the Pope Pius VI had been kidnapped and had died a French prisoner and the College of Cardinals had been chased out. So the conclave actually happened in Venice and people were really wondering what the future of the church would be. And two candidates emerged as uh, the key, um, let's say, papabili or front runners. One was Cardinal Mattei, who the Habsburgs wanted because they thought he would be a pliant sort of uh, creature of theirs. And the other was Cardinal Bellisomi, who the cousins or faction around the form of Pope Pius VI thought he would be an independent. After two months of fruitless ballots, Barnabas Chiaramonti, the future Pope Pius VII, emerged as a compromise candidate. He was seen as sufficiently independent, but also moderate enough that he wouldn't sort of rock the boat. And in the end, the Habsburgs didn't veto him. So he was a compromise candidate. But Unbeknownst to everybody, they got a very strong uh, pope.
1: Why did Bonaparte make his démarche to the church on the fifth of June, eighteen
0: hundred? Oh, that is a very good question. This is when he made his speech to the priests of Milan, I take it, in which he and it's a very interesting speech. Um, I've recently read that one historian Owen Chadwick thinks it might be forged, but I've not found any evidence of that. And it is reported in the local media. I think ultimately Bonaparte had realized that one of the key things which had ensured that France was in a constant state of turmoil and civil war was the religious schism created by the French Revolution that had divided the clergy into those loyal to Rome and those loyal to the revolution. And that a lot of the priests loyal to Rome had become guerrilla leaders. They had uh, stoked the fires of uh, rebellion against taxation and against conscription he realized he needed the clergy on side. So I think we could see this 5th of uh, June speech as an olive branch towards the church, the first big olive branch that the revolution dangles in front of the church, and it's well received.
1: Why did the Vatican agree to the onerous terms of the Concordat of 1801?
0: Well, that's a difficult one. I mean... I'm not sure that they're that onerous in France, in the sense that the Church had really nothing to lose if you think about it. Most of the clergy loyal to Rome were outlaws. all of church land had been confiscated, so I think it was an there was an incentive for the church that some deal was better than the status quo so under the terms of the Concordat, all priests and bishops would have received a salary, Catholicism would have been uh allowed to become a public religion and would have had its worship protected. The problem, it seems to me, was that the church did not want its clergy to be subject to secular laws. And the other problem that emerged in all of this, which was actually going to be a strength for the church rather than a weakness, was the question of the old 100 or so Ancien Regime bishops who had survived. Napoleon wanted them deposed, and initially there was a lot of resistance on the side of the papacy because, after all, the only crime of the old bishops, the bishops who had existed before the revolution, was their loyalty to the church and the monarchy. But ultimately, the church relented and the principle was recognized that the pope could remove bishops on his own authority, something which had never been clear before the Concordat. This is enshrined in Article 3. So I think the Clergy, and especially Cardinal Antonelli, said, wow, this is actually quite a good thing for the papacy uh, and its primacy over the church. Bizarrely enough, Bonaparte didn't quite realize that he was really making a rod for his own back and that this was later on in the 19th century going to be an incredibly important article. It could almost be seen as a papal revolution. So I think in France, the Concordat wasn't such a bad deal. The problem emerges later when Napoleon sees it as a template he can export to the rest of Europe. And there, the church suddenly goes, whoa, we never agreed to the Concordat being exported beyond the borders of France.
1: How tranquil were the relations between the Vatican and Bonaparte in the first years of the Concordat?
0: I think there is a honeymoon period the first few years. Uh, the church not only sends an important legate, Cardinal Caprara, to help rebuild the church in France, But Napoleon's uncle, who was only a few years older than him, he was a sort of a half uncle. Uh, Joseph Fesch is made Cardinal of Lyon. Not only that, but three new or actually four new French cardinals are elevated, which is a great honour, something that hadn't been done since the fall of the Ancien Régime. Things are quite uh, cordial. What people also forget is that for northern Italy, the Republic and subsequent Kingdom of Italy, another concordat is negotiated in 1803 which again has fairly generous terms towards this French client state, although it's less draconian than the French one because fewer dioceses are suppressed and there is less confiscation of church lands. But it shows that the church is still able to negotiate and have a viable discussion with Napoleon. The other thing, of course, which is incredibly important, is the coronation, where the pope takes the fairly unprecedented step. I think it's since, uh, is it Pepin the Brief? that a pope hadn't traveled outside of his domains to crown another a, a foreign monarch. Charles V in the 16th century had been crowned king of Italy in Bologna. But of course, that was within the papal states. So the pope hadn't had traveled outside of Rome, but still within his domain. So I think that shows a certain respect and understanding with Napoleon. As ever, I think that both sides are living under a misapprehension. Napoleon thinks the church has accepted its subordination to his secular power, whereas the papacy thinks that Napoleon is just that this is just the beginning for the resumption of the old alliance of throne and altar that had existed under the Ancien regime. To make it more simple, the church hoped that eventually the concordat would be uh, the starting point for the reestablishment of a relationship of equals between church and state. And that clearly isn't what Napoleon was looking for. It's a misunderstanding. The coronation of 1804, although it's a pleasant event, it's a a magnificent coronation. The Pope comes to Paris under under a number of misapprehensions, namely that Napoleon is willing to renegotiate for an expansion of papal territory in northern Italy, that he might be open to discussions on the abrogation of divorce and other anti-Catholic forms of legislation that existed in Napoleon's civil code, and also that the constitutional bishops who've been loyal to the French Revolution would be forced to apologize to the Pope. Ultimately, only the final part that the constitutional bishops apologize, let's say to the Pope will retract their schism. That's the only thing the Pope gets in his visit to, uh, to Paris. Everything else shows or, or worries Pius VII because he's starting to feel this guy, Napoleon, isn't on my side. Um, the thing that isn't an issue, which historians often uh, highlight in books on the on the Napoleonic coronation, the fact that Napoleon crowned himself wasn't a problem that had been agreed in advance. And the pope was willing to accept that. After all, the most important religious moment in the coronation was when Napoleon was sealed with holy oil. It seems to me that the pope just got a sense that it was all take but no give. In uh in the relationship with France. And when he met Napoleon, he realized that this wasn't a particularly spiritual person and that he wasn't willing to give any further concessions. So I think the Pope returned from Paris to Rome feeling dejected. I mean, to give you a sense of what Napoleon was like, the Pope was given a new papal tiara or crown as a gift for attending the coronation. And when the Pope examined it, he realized that the jewels placed in this tiara were some of the jewels that the French had looted in Rome in 1798. So the Pope was basically being given back what was already his in this gift. So after 1804, uh, the relationship starts going downhill.
1: Uh, so that explains why, as you put it, uh, the coronation for his holiness, Pope Pius Seventh was, quote, disappointing, unquote.
0: Oh, massively. He had gone with high hopes that this would cement a better working relationship with the French Empire or with the new French Empire. But in the end, he just realizes that uh, Napoleon is out to get as much as he can and to always encroach ever more on the prerogatives of the church. So he feels that after this, that Napoleon is not somebody he can easily do business with.
1: So that uh, is, in essence, the origins of the decline in the relations between Bonaparte and the Vatican. Yes,
0: uh, a decline that's going to nosedive in the subsequent 12 months after the coronation.
1: Now, what explains the um, uh, exact causation of the French occupation of Rome in 1808?
0: Well, again, it's, uh, it's, it's a miscommunication, or rather, miscommunication perhaps is unfair on the church. Napoleon basically, after his coronation as king of Italy in 1805, six months after the coronation in Notre Dame considers the Papal States a vassal of France. And the Pope, of course, had never consented to this. I mean, to tell you how bad it is, in the coat of arms of the New Kingdom of Italy, the coat of arms of the Papal States appears as one of the quarterings. This basically shows that Napoleon considers the Pope's sovereign state to be part of his domains. and. Clearly, the papacy is worried about this. Napoleon doesn't occupy the papal states immediately. Initially, he claims in 1805 that all he needs to do is occupy Ancona and Civitavecchia, which are the main ports on the Tyrrhenian and on the Adriatic Sea. He says that he's doing this to protect the papacy from Anglo-Russian and Neapolitan forces in case they try to invade this neutral territory. His forces violate papal territory in their invasion of Naples that same year, and the papacy keeps protesting against these invasions. In 1807, Napoleon sends an ultimatum to the Pope saying that the Pope must sign an offensive defensive alliance with the French Empire and that failure to do so will lead to the occupation of his states. The Pope, who under the guidance of his foreign minister Cardinal Consalvi says the papacy has to be neutral, it can't participate in warfare, after all, the Pope is the successor of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. And can't uh, undertake offensive warfare or interfere in in armed struggles, he refuses this alliance to Cours. In February 1808, the entirety, including Rome, of the Papal States is occupied. A few months later, the eastern or let's say northeastern Adriatic coastline of the Papal States is annexed to the Kingdom of Italy and gradually, uh, little by little, Papal territory is annexed to France. The culmination of which happens in June 1809, I think it's the 11th of June 1809, when Rome itself is annexed to uh, the French Empire. And the papal standard is lowered and uh, the French tricolor uh, is raised at Castel Sant'Angelo, which is the citadel or key fortress of Rome.
1: Now, why did Bonaparte decide to kidnap His Holiness in 1809?
0: Now, this is perhaps one of the more controversial parts of my book. Various historians who wrote in the 19th century argued that Napoleon never gave this order. I'm not convinced. I think the reason for this is that after the annexation of Rome, a few days later, the pope excommunicates all those responsible for the usurpation of his sovereignty. Now, some historians here, again, have been a bit nitpicky. They say that in the bull of excommunication, Napoleon's name doesn't appear. But I would argue that those responsible for the usurpation of papal rights, Napoleon is the key person there, clearly. So we can't say that the bull excludes Napoleon. It's clearly directed at him and his collaborators. It's actually quite a wide bull. I think almost everybody who collaborated with the French was excommunicated Napoleon writes to his brother-in-law, the king of Naples, Murat, and to General Muli, the military governor of Rome, basically saying that if the pope continues to cause trouble, he should be removed from Rome. To me, that is an order for a kidnapping. And that, I think, is going to be the reason why. That Napoleon basically feels that normality and the normal administration of Rome can't be achieved if the pope is in residence at the Quirinal Palace, and is encouraging the people of Rome and the papal states to resist passively the French occupation. That's why, basically, Napoleon wants to pope out.
1: How did the church operate in the period of His Holiness's captivity? Well, this is
0: where I think it gets quite exciting. I found in my book, I think I'm one of the first to have done this, some of the documentation from, let's say, the congregation of cardinals who was, discussing what should be done if the pope and the cardinals were removed from Rome. And basically, the pope sent sealed envelopes to various clergymen, which he nominated apostolic delegates across Europe, and that these letters were to be destroyed uh, after they'd been opened. And they gave instructions on what to do and how to continue to administer the church in the pope's absence, And furthermore, they gave orders not to take oaths of allegiance or to obey the uh, French Empire. The key thing also, which was most important in all of this, was that Napoleon's candidates to vacant dioceses were not to be recognized as legitimate bishops. They were to be seen as intruders. I mean, it's almost like um, a Cold War spy novel, you know, that all of these envelopes are sent around Europe and that they that it basically creates a secret hierarchy that was managing the church. It's, 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 it's quite interesting. Sadly, because all these letters were destroyed, we don't quite know what the instructions given were.
1: Why was Bonaparte not able to bend his holiness to his will?
0: Well, this tells us, uh, I mean, I, I think the expression, iron fist and a velvet glove, really uh, fits Pius VII incredibly well. He's a gentle, meek man at the start of his pontificate, but he is somebody who's well aware that he has a sacred trust, namely the papal states and the administration of the church. He will not bend to bullying. You know, he's taken away from his capital city. He's basically placed in solitary confinement for most of his time as a French, as a prisoner of the French in five years. But he never bends with one exception the concordat of Fontainebleau of 1813, where he does sign an agreement where he basically renounces papal sovereignty, but he's just exhausted. And within a few weeks, he retracts that. But I think he's really, the, in some ways, the most admirable figure in all of this, in, in, in the book. He really will not yield. And, you know, Napoleon even shakes him at times uh, during their meeting in Fontainebleau, but he is replete with energy. I think the fact that he was a monk in his early life has something to play with this. He was used to isolation, to prayer, to being in his own head. I think only somebody with that monastic training and able to deal with solitude could have survived this ordeal. So I think his personality and his background were essential in resisting Napoleon.
1: Now, why did His Holiness Pope Pius VII sign the Concordat of 1813? And then why so quickly did he retract his approval?
0: I think we have to realize that by this stage he'd almost been a prisoner for four years. He he was in the palace of Fontainebleau, he'd almost died when he'd been transferred to that palace in the Alps because he was getting frail and of a certain age and, you know, the pressure of isolation was giving him psychosomatic illnesses. Napoleon also surrounded him in Fontainebleau with cardinals loyal to the French Empire who were pressuring him to yield. In Fontainebleau, it's going to be the last time that he and Napoleon meet face to face. And from all accounts, Napoleon was quite a difficult man to resist. He could be a bully. He could be, uh, you know, quite forceful in his approach. So I don't think it's surprising that he wavered a little. At the end of the day, he hoped that he could meet again with the cardinals His true advisors, so-called black cardinals, because they hadn't attended Napoleon's wedding, that he could get together with them again and that they might be able to resume the offensive against the empire. I think it was just a temporary ruse on the the Pope's part. And indeed, that's exactly what happens. As part of the Concordat of Fontainebleau, he renounces his sovereignty over the papal states and agrees to become uh, a paid official of the French empire. But... The other side of the agreement is he can, again, meet with all of his cardinals freely and also with the diplomatic corps, which he'd been isolated from, and as soon as he starts meeting with Cardinal Di Pietro Consalvi, they're advising him, you must publicly retract this agreement, and he does.
1: Why did Bonaparte finally free his holiness in early 1814?
0: Well, that's a good question. Um as I should say, all of these questions have been excellent. Basically, Napoleon, since the Russian campaign, his star or his luck had been running out. He'd been defeated at the Battle of Leipzig in October 1813, at which point it was clear that French hegemony over Europe was broken, that the French Empire was going to collapse. Whether Bonaparte or another dynasty were going to rule over France was an open question. But in 1814, Napoleon decides to send the Pope back. Also, the Pope refuses any further negotiations or even a peace treaty with France. And I think Napoleon's idea was that the Pope might cause trouble or dissent or disagreements when he was sent back into the Allied camp. He did the same, incidentally, with the King of Spain, who was also his prisoner. He sent him back at more or less the same time, hoping that these people will sow discord into the Allied camp. But it's a, 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 excuse the pun, it's a pious hope in the sense that the Pope doesn't want to cause trouble and fully actually thanks the allied monarchs for his deliverance. Although it must be said that the Pope is going to be very keen on the restitution of the papal states as they existed before the French Revolution. That's going to be his key thing. But ultimately, I, I think Napoleon hoped that this was would cause trouble.
1: Now, in, upon his return to Rome in 1814, you state that uh, his holiness policies took what you call a reactionary turn. Why was that?
0: Well, I think it's not dissimilar in some ways to his successor, Pius IX. He felt that he tried to play a fair game, that he tried to make concessions, that he tried to sort of come to terms with modernity, but he felt betrayed. So he felt that actually it was time to place religion back on a preeminent pedestal that it was going to be one of the most important elements in a post-revolutionary world, that actually a rediscovery of a simpler, more Baroque faith, the faith of the Catholics he'd encountered, ordinary Catholics he'd encountered during his time as a prisoner of Napoleon, that that was the most important thing. So I think that's why he takes that reactionary line. He wants to punish the clergy that uh, collaborated with Napoleon. Indeed, he creates a congregation. Uh, called the Congregation of Disorders that pursues collaboration, collaborationists and punishes them. The other thing he does, which we which is a complicated thing, he restores the Jesuit order, which, of course, had been very unpopular with the Spanish and Portuguese and French monarchies. Again, a sign that the papacy is trying to regain the initiative. And by this, I mean that the Jesuit order historically and famously had been the stormtroopers of the papacy, their ultimate loyalty was to the Pope rather than the state. And this is interpreted across Europe as a sign that the Pope wants to emphasize the preeminence of the church. Uh, one of the more funny stories is also that the Pope's um, temporary foreign uh, secretary, Cardinal Bartolomeo Pacca, even returns to the pre-revolutionary timekeeping system, Lor Italiano, Laura Boema, which is a very complicated timekeeping system that measures the start of the day from dusk. Whereas the French timekeeping system, which is the one we use today, always starts the new day at, um, at midnight. So the papal states were almost on a different time zone to the rest of the world on uh, Pius's restoration. So I think ultimately he felt that religion needed to regain the initiative and that it was no more Mr. Nice Guy, so to speak.
1: What were the long-term repercussions of the conflict between Bonaparte and His Holiness Pope Pius VII in 19th century Europe?
0: Now, actually, in some ways, you're really discussing something, a topic that's very close to my heart, because it's going to be the uh, topic of my next book. I think, ultimately, it teaches the Church not to trust the modern liberal uh, state, that it will feel very hostile and very jealous to any secular or temporal power that seeks to subordinate the church or take away any of its prerogatives. The Pope's successors will always be deeply distrustful of that. The other thing, which is a big part of the book and we haven't discussed, Napoleon tries to use a church council to limit the Pope's powers, the National Council of 1811. I think Gallicanism, all of these theories, that local churches could be autonomous from Rome. I think they're deeply damaged by their collaboration with Napoleon. I think the future conciliarism or the notion that a council is not subject to papal authority and might even supersede it is destroyed by this episode. And indeed, Pius IX is going to be so confident of what he can do with a council that he's going to use it for the first Vatican council to declare the Pope infallible. So I think in some ways, this leads to a dysfunctional relationship between modern state and church, but also the papacy emerges spiritually strengthened from the Napoleonic experience. Ultimately, the pope becomes much more powerful in his prerogatives over the church hierarchy, over church teaching, the magisterium. But let's say that in terms of politics, they're entering into a deeply conflictual relationship with the modern state, and this isn't going to benefit the papacy. Ultimately, one of the key things Pius VII wanted to maintain the papal states, that's the great lost cause of the 19th century. All of his successors are going to be desperate to maintain the papal states, but it's quite clear that the European powers, and especially the nascent Kingdom of Italy after 1850, uh, uh, yes, after 1859, is not going to have any time for uh, an independent theocratic kingdom in the center of the peninsula
1: if you wanted people to take one thing away from your book what would it be
0: um i think just how interesting church history is you know sometimes there's a reputation that ecclesiastical history is all about bishops and theology and rather abstract ideas but this is actually about the politics of religion about how important uh who governs the Church is. And also, I would like people to take away um, how difficult it has been for the Catholic Church to accept a modernity in which it doesn't have sovereignty. And I I think that's a very interesting thing. It's a very long term process. It probably covers two centuries. And I think some of the problems we face today with the Church having had difficulties in accepting secular power go all the way back to uh, this episode.
1: On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Dr. Kahani, for being so kind to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books and History, a podcast channel, New Books Network. Thank you, Dr. Kahani, very much.
0: A great pleasure. Thanks so much.